0: Well, good morning to everybody. Would you join me in opening up a Bible, uh, either one you brought with you or one in the pew or on your device to Acts 17? If you want to use a blue pew Bible, you can find that on page 926. And let me start just by echoing uh, something that Brian prayed about of just how great of a day it was yesterday at our annual church picnic it was uh, incredible weather. Uh, the first time that we moved it to Saturday afternoon, just due to now being at two services and being tough to kind of fit that in on a Sunday. Uh, but it really was just uh, an amazing time of fellowship. And um, it seemed that everyone really enjoyed it. And let me just give a special shout out to uh, to both Sherry Denlinger and to Mary Capalbo for how much work they put in spearheading uh, that picnic from start to finish. Um, And then for the grilling team, the two Joes, uh, member Joe Governale and Pastor Joe, uh, who just grilled for almost 300 people yesterday and did it seamlessly, so it seemed. Uh, So just grateful for that. It was really, uh, that is a joy, and uh, for our church to have that on the calendar, obviously didn't do it last year, and so it was great to bring it back uh, in a big way. But as we go into the second week of our vision series that we're calling Refocus, I want to start with um, talking about a woman named Amy Carmichael. Uh, I've referenced her here and there in the past, so you might have recognized the name. Uh, She was a woman from England who felt God's call on her life uh, from a young age to really enter the global mission field, and that conviction grew and eventually led her to India, where she would serve for 53 years without a furlough before she passed away in 1951. Uh, of all the things Carmichael uh, contributed to, she's most known for founding the Donavore Fellowship, which was a refuge for children that were orphaned or unwanted or sold at local Hindu temples. And you can read her story in a book called A Chance to Die. A Chance to Die, written by Elizabeth Elliott. We have it in our library. I know several of you have read it Um And I read it last summer for the first time, blown away by it, and it's one of those books where you kind of, as you're reading it, you you ask yourself, like, how is it possible for a person to be this driven? How is it possible for somebody to persevere against all the odds they're stacked up against and just have that kind of strong-willed desire to say, I'm just going to keep on the path. I feel like God is calling me on. But then in the book, you find that to Amy, it wasn't that complex, That she said the single principle that governed her life was this question Ask not how little, but how much can love give? Ask not how little, but how much can love give? Many of you know, because we talk about it often, or at least try to, that this church, ever since its founding, has a rich history of global missions. Um, partnering with individuals and families and organizations that are engaged in fogational missional work Uh, to the ends of the earth, but also locally, so locally and globally. And that conviction that when Grace Church was planted back in the 40s uh, was kind of born out of this belief that the local church is the primary avenue through which God is accomplishing His mission to make disciples of all nations to the glory of His name. And so each local church, wherever it is located, however small, however large, should prayerfully consider their role in that global mission movement. And so practically speaking, there's prayer, there's relationships that we create and cultivate, and then over 20% of our budget each year is allocated towards missionary families and organizations. So when you give to Grace Church, you're not only uh, supporting the disciple-making, a uh, kingdom-expanding ministry through what is happening here, but through every dollar given to Grace, you're also playing a part in the disciple-making work happening uh Locally in the area, uh, in New York City, domestically in places like Mississippi, and then globally like Kenya, Nepal, Israel, Costa Rica, Bolivia, and other places. A local church with a global mindset. Here's the thing that would happen to me growing up in this church and knowing about this conviction, being kind of taught and shaped by this conviction of the global mission field, is that when I thought about missions and I thought about the mission field, I always thought about foreign places. That that is where the gospel was needed. And the mission field, again, was in far faraway lands. Um, but here, th- th- this was home. We, we, we sent people to the mission field and kind of implying in my young mind that we are not a mission field here like there's a mission field in Nepal or Japan or elsewhere. But as I grow and matured in the faith, I have been growing and am still growing in the conviction that these suburbs of New York City are as much a mission field as anywhere in the world. And that is a little bit of the heart behind our vision series, again, that we're calling Refocus this year. Um, if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermons. That kind of gave you a reason um, and the reasons why we do a vision series each year and why we're focusing on this theme of refocus. But to sum it up, we aim to be clear here at Grace Church on what it looks like to make disciples, not just as a vision statement for the website, not just in general, But how do we make disciples as a church in our given context, in our place, in our time in northern New Jersey in 2021? What does that look like? And we're spending each week in Acts 17 to learn from Paul's time in the city of Athens. And again, last week, we really only focused on verse 16, um, where we just wanted to understand where we are. Where are we? Where is Grace Church right now? What are the primary idols that we find we're up against? Uh, that as again, Brian prayed, that threaten to keep us captive and distract us from Christ, but also confr- that we are going to confront in a culture that we're trying to reach. And from Paul, we learned that we are to embrace where we are, to see where we are, and then finally to understand where we are. And now we're on to week two. Who? And how do we proclaim in the mission field of the suburbs? Who and how do we proclaim in the mission field of the suburbs? So we're going to read uh, a passage this morning from Acts 17, again, starting in 16. And this time we're going to go and read all the way to verse 31. So you can follow along in the Bible or up on the screen. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, "'May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, "'for you bring some strange things to our ears. "'We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. "'Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there "'would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new.'" Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, "'Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious.'" All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three principles that Paul modeled in Athens, and we're going to see how Paul modeled them, and then we're going to shift and see how can we apply these principles for us today in our context. So the first principle, Paul entered. Number 1, Paul entered. In this passage, we read about Paul in three places, two of which he went by choice, the synagogue and the marketplace, and the third he went to by invitation, the Areopagus. But before we even see what he did in those spaces, I think I want us to first consider the vital decision to enter into those spaces, That that as he approached Athens, or arrived at Athens, I should say, uh, the idols that provoked his spirit did not drive him to fear, because fear would have kept him from entering into the city. Nor did being provoked drive him to this kind of hardened bitterness, because then he would not have cared about the people enough to enter the city. And rather, and we touched on this last week, that spirit that provoked him on the docks looking into Athens drove him into action due to his love for God and his love for neighbor. There was an anger in his heart towards the idols of Athens because of his love for God. And yet he was grieved for the people of Athens who were held captive by those idols because of his love for neighbor, you see? Like, if you took away either of those loves, you took away either his love for God or his love for neighbor, Paul's not entering into the city. Perhaps this is why, or one of the reasons why, Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. It appears Paul's principle sounds a lot like Amy Carmichael's. Ask not how little, but how much can love give? It's a passion out of someone who's experienced divine love. It's someone can only love in this way if they experience what true love is like. We love because he first loved us. And what drives Paul on Athens is not success. He's not just a competitive guy. He doesn't want to win. He's not looking to just tear down the system and prop himself up. What drives him is this transformational relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul just cherishes Jesus. He loves him so much because he has been loved so much, despite a life of rebellion that he lived before Christ. And so now his desire is to see others, to know this same Jesus. Paul loves God enough to hate the idols. And Paul loves Lost people enough to enter the city. Number one, Paul entered. Number two, yes, these all start with the same letter. You're welcome. All right? I'm just, I was rolling this week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Number two, Paul engaged. So, So Paul entered, and now Paul engaged. Notice that Paul first goes to the synagogue, as was his custom when he entered into cities. But then Athens, immediately we know that something different is happening here because he does something that we didn't read about in the other cities uh, in this second missionary journey in Acts 17, in that he goes into the marketplace. Verse 17, he went to the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And so you might ask, if you're reading this passage, and you're trying to understand what Luke is telling us here, why? Why is it different here? And I assume that part of it is that those idols that overwhelmed Paul as he saw and entered into the city were dedicated primarily to Greek gods and Greek goddesses. And if he's going to confront those idols that is holding this city captive, he's not going to find that those idols are holding the Jews captive in the synagogue, but the Greeks, the non-Jews. And since Paul, as he writes in Romans 1.16, he is not ashamed of the gospel, we know that, and he says, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So he goes to the synagogue, but then he says, I can't just stay at the synagogue in Athens. If I'm going to confront the idols in Athens, I have to go where... Those idols are primarily holding people captive, and that drove him to the marketplace. The context of the city impacted where he decided to enter and engage, both the religious and the non-religious spaces. But then how does Paul engage? What is his strategy here? I think the key word we're given in this passage is the word reasoned. He reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace meaning Paul didn't kind of come barnstorming into the place, right? Like he didn't come just saying, like, everybody listen up, I got something to say. He's not condemning, he's not sitting up shop, he's not on the street corner with a loudspeaker. No, he reasoned with. He entered into dialogue, he discussed, he went back and forth and back and forth with those he came in contact with. Remember, we're not told how long, that Paul was in Athens. But if you just use some logic here, it's at least as long as it would take for a round trip to Berea and back where he came from. Because he told those whom dropped him off, he said, hey, go back and tell Timothy and tell Silas to come soon. So it takes as as 186 miles, whether they're going inland or they're going back by sea, first century, 400 miles round trip and Paul and Silas, depending on how soon that they would come back and listen to Paul, I can't say how much time that was, but it wasn't a week. I think Paul was in Athens by himself for a pretty long time. And in that time, every day, he observed. He asked questions. He answered questions. There was a contextualized back and forth with those people he spoke to. You see, when he was in the synagogue, he would reason from Scripture, because that is the common ground that he had with those people. He would use what we now know as the Old Testament to show them how those Scriptures point to and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But that won't work in the marketplace, because the people in the marketplace don't give, like, they don't care about Scripture, They don't know Scripture. So, like, if Paul goes and starts preaching about the God of the Old Testament, he's going to get a lot of blank stares. It won't do anything. He has to contextualize his message to the people who are there. So, he reasons from culture. He reasons from human nature, which we'll see an example of in a moment. Athens, uh, which, again, we talked a little bit about this last week, had kind of this legacy intellectual uh, giant of a city. Uh, You had old philosophers that came centuries before, like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, which uh, still shape a lot of kind of Western culture and philosophy today, but certainly by the first century, they were still very much in the minds and hearts of the people there. And there was a form of dialogue that was called the Socratic method. If you majored in philosophy or know more about philosophy than I do, uh, the Socratic method of dialogue is a formal kind of Q&A format. I ask a question, you answer the question, and then you ask me a question, and we go back, and we go back and forth, and we exchange ideas. And that's what people in Athens love to do. You read in the passage, they just love learning something new. This would happen in the marketplace every day. And in some ways, it does kind of show a healthy form of communication amongst two people, especially two people who are coming to a topic from different angles. If we don't disagree... The key is to ask good questions, good questions to actually understand, right? Don't assume about the person you're dialoguing with. Don't assume that you know why you disagree with them. Ask questions. More questions, less assumptions. There's something to that Socratic method of dialogue that's actually healthy. And Luke tells us that apparently Paul gained some attention because of those discussions were centered on Jesus and the resurrection, That was new to the people of Athens, and they loved something new. But Paul avoided two equally dangerous traps when it comes to engaging with others. The first trap is to proclaim Christ without any discussion. So again, the kind of the barnstorming mentality Showing no interest in other people. Showing no interest in where they're coming from. Showing no interest in maybe the beliefs that they've hold. It's just, I'm here to tell you the truth. You, like, just don't, just shut up and listen, right? I got something to say to you. He avoids that. But he also avoids having a discussion without ever proclaiming Christ. Driven by a mentality of fear. I only want to kind of keep... The peace here. I don't want to go there. I don't want to ever share the reason, the hope that I have. I just want to hear what you have to say. So when Paul engaged, he avoided both those traps. And I think in this way, he followed the ministry model of Jesus. Paul didn't reinvent the wheel. If you were to read through the Gospels about this person, Jesus, I think one thing that would stand out to you is that he asked a ton of questions. No matter who He was talking to, His disciples who were following Him, the Pharisees who hated Him, the strangers who were just perplexed by Him, and everybody in between, Jesus, the God-man who knows all things, asked questions. Not because He didn't know the answers, but good questions often expose Other people and their worldviews more so than good statements. Good questions are vital in any kind of missional work. So that's number two, Paul engaged. And then number three, Paul explained. He entered, he engaged, he explained. Luke tells us again, he went day in, day out to the synagogue in the marketplace, and then he is invited by the Athenians to speak at the Areopagus. So, so just notice that, right? Faithful engagement over a long period of time. Again, I don't think this is day one that Paul ended up in the Areopagus. I think this is day after day after day, maybe even months of engaging with the people in Athens that now he gets invited because faithful engagement over a long period of time often leads to an opportunity to explain the message of the gospel. Faithful engagement over a long period of time will often lead to the invitation to explain the message of the gospel. And in his explanation, he is still mindful of where he is and who he is talking to. Paul doesn't have a cookie-cutter approach here. He doesn't have the kind of the four points that, okay, now you ask me, uh, here we go. I've memorized this. I took this class in high school. I read that Lee Strobel book. Let's go. Point one, point two, point three, point four. Not what Paul does. He's mindful of where he is. He's mindful of who he's talking to. And this is so vital if we as a church are going to focus on our mission where we are. That the good news of Jesus Christ never changes, amen? The gospel will never change. But the medium and method of how that gospel is presented has to change. It has to change based upon understanding where you are. The message never changes. The medium and the method has to change. Uh, Tony Merida, I I quoted him last week. He's a pastor down, I think, in North Carolina. He has a commentary on Acts. And and, and based on what Paul did in the Oropagus, he, he provides kind of this grid that I found very helpful and I will repeat for a long time. He says, Paul gave a point of contact and then he gave a point of conflict and then he pointed to Christ. Point of contact, point of conflict, and then he pointed to Christ. You know how many same-letter points there are on here? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, like, let's just quickly see how Paul did it. Point of contact. He says, I was walking around your city. I observed objects of your worship. So, in the synagogue, his point of contact is the Old Testament Scriptures. But here, where they don't know the Scriptures, his point of contact is their propensity to worship. People in Athens were worshipers. Something outside of themselves. And so Paul is making a point of contact with them, saying, hey, all of us are worshipers. It's not about if you worship something, it's what you worship. It's his point of contact, but then he goes into the point of conflict. He says, your worship, based on your inscription that I see right here, is to the unknown God. But I proclaim to you that I worship a God who is known. Because this God who revealed himself, that's his point of conflict. This is where now we separate. You worship the unknown God. I'm proclaiming to you a God who is known. And then he points to Christ. That this God is not one God amongst many that we can choose from, whatever works best for you, but it's the God who made all things. Right As Megan said, literally what our children are learning downstairs at this very moment, same God, same creator, he's worshipped all things for his glory. He's made all of us in his image. Every one of us is from one nation. That is a radical message today, certainly was in the first century, that we are all image bearers. And he created man with a desire to know him and be known. And Paul says, and he, he's being like pastoral. He said here, he's like he's not he's not removed from us. He's not a god who's removed, as the Epicureans believed. The Epicureans was a kind of a, a group of people, a philosophical thought, who lived the life by the saying, "Quote: If it feels good, it must be right." Interesting, familiar. He said, "Nor is God fatalistic and unemotional, as the Stoics believed." The other group Luke mentioned. Who live their lives by the saying, it is what it is and you can't change it? Interesting, familiar. The more things change, the more things stay the same. But rather, Paul says he's not far from us and he desires that we be reconciled to him. And he sent his son on our behalf and we are to repent of our sin and believe in him because he will judge the world someday. And he'll judge it in righteousness. He's a perfect judge. He makes no mistakes. And it's by him that all will be raised from the dead and live forever. Point of contact, point of conflict, point to Christ. This is how Paul went about his time in Athens. He entered, he engaged, he explained. An unchanging message to a constantly changing world. Now, the question for us in this series, Refocus, how can we apply what Paul did to our context, Grace Church 2021, Northern New Jersey? I'm sure many of you, as you're listening to this, the wheels are turning in your own mind, making those connections, the Spirit even kind of revealing that to you in your own life. But this, again, is the work of Refocus. Because here's the thing, the suburbs of New Jersey, while maybe some overlap and we see some correlations, it's, it's still not Athens in the first century Athens was a pre-Christian context. They didn't hear about Jesus. They didn't know about the resurrection. We are increasingly in what many people are calling a post-Christian context. It's overly familiar. So the copy-paste model won't work. You know what I mean by that? Like, let's just copy Paul and do what he did, say what he did, memorize that, and just do it here, and it's going to work. This is the downfall of a lot of pastors conferences or children's ministry conferences is that you hear a pastor in Dallas say this is what God's doing in Dallas and this is how we're doing it and a pastor in New Jersey goes like, "Oh, we just got to do that." And then you do the exact same thing and you bring it to New Jersey, you're like, "Why isn't it working?" Cuz New Jersey, not Dallas. And in the same way, <laughs> New Jersey, not Athens in the 1st century. So we can't copy Paul, but we can and must learn from Paul. And we got to put in the work, church. We have to put in the work individually and as a church to see how am I going to live on mission where I am. Obviously, I can't say everything there is to say about this in just a few minutes. But I hope to encourage you. That's what I want this morning. I hope to encourage you and encourage us as we think about application for us. Last week, we said when it comes to mission, before we consider what we need to do, we first have to, have to affirm what we are to feel. To grow our affections towards Christ, that's going to increase our grief for the people who are lost and fuel our desire to build one another up in the church. So, we talked about what we were to feel last week, and now we can talk a little bit about what to do. What does this look like in action? And I want to do so with the three same principles, enter, engage, explain. Number one, we need to enter the spaces God has placed us. It's the first step for many of us, probably the hardest one, because this begins with a paradigm shift in our own minds and hearts where, just like last week, we said we need to embrace where God has us, even if you're honest, you don't want to be here right now. You don't want to be where God has you. I understand that that's real for many people. But I also want to lovingly tell you, even if you don't want to be here, you're here. And God makes no mistakes. And so we are to embrace where we are and choose to enter in. Every person needs to do, understand what does entering in mean for them. But that entrance, we can see from Paul, is not contingent on personality type. This is not just for the extroverts. This is not for a certain gift set. This is not for a certain season of life. But it's rooted in a love for God and a love for neighbor. And I know it's not easy. I I know that we can and should acknowledge there are very real fears of entering into certain spaces on mission that we would much rather not enter in, keep isolated any way we can, or just enter in and look like everybody around you, not wanting to stand out as a believer. I understand that we have spirits, I'm speaking personally here, that is predisposed to comfort and to choosing what's easy as opposed to choosing to enter what's hard. I don't want to rock the boat. I like peace. But as Dutch theologian Herman Bavink once said, quote, however lovely peace would be, the conflict is upon us. Conflict brought about not by a political party, not by an ideology, but a very real spiritual enemy who uses false gods to hold image bearers captive. And church, there will be peace someday, but it's not here yet. And as long as we're in a, con- as we're in a fallen world, the conflict is upon us. So the bottom line, I think, for us when it comes to entering is that it's one thing to merely exist in the place where God has you right now, but what God desires of you and what God desires of us as a church is you enter into the places where God has us and be willing to be used by him as he sees fit. And so I think, again, looking at the paradigm and the grid that Paul shows us, that you can look at it in terms of religious spaces and non-religious spaces, That the mission of glorifying God by making disciples who know Jesus and make him known is not just entering the space of what you might call evangelism in the world. It's first and foremost entering into the space of discipleship in the church. In fact, if I can tell you this as your pastor, I don't want you to enter into the world unless you are simultaneously being discipled in the church. Because as a Christian who's not connected to a church, you will do more damage as a Christian apart from community than when you're rooted in it. And what I mean by entering into the church is mentally, physically, emotionally prioritizing the faith community in your life, prioritizing the Sunday gathering in your week, joining and becoming a member here, being in a grace group, serving regularly, giving generously... Because the church exists to build one another up in the likeness of Christ. And you cannot be built up in the likeness of Christ by people you're never around. And you cannot build up others in the likeness of Christ by people or to people that you're never around. And I understand, again, there are very real fears for many people of entering into a church and going all in with a the church. There's questions like will this church really accept me? if they really knew me. Maybe you've been hurt by a church in the past. Maybe you've been hurt by this church, or somebody in this church, or by professing Christians, and I never want to make light of that. But the answer is never to isolate yourself or just be very marginally involved. It can't be. We must go all in with one another in the church to see the purpose God has for your life to glorify His name and enjoy Him forever, intimately linked with the purpose of a church to glorify His name by making disciples, to see the overlap there and enter in. It's very hard to be spiritually healthy and only marginally involved in a church. then the call is into the so-called marketplace like Paul did. And in a post-Christian culture in the suburbs, the marketplace is not one physical location. We're not going to start meeting in downtown Ridgewood because that's what Paul did in Athens. But I think the marketplace is in all the spaces you can and do inhibit that will allow you to develop and cultivate real relationships with people in the world. And and the reality is when we gather in this place and then we scatter from this place, you go to places I can never go. You're involved with people that I'll never know. There's neighborhoods. There's workplaces. There's uh, hobbies like different clubs or groups or gyms or sports or fellow parents in the schools. There's the digital marketplace of the internet and social media. And as populated as our area is, it is surprisingly still easy to isolate ourselves easy to isolate ourselves emotionally and spiritually where we may say we're called to love our neighbor and we say that phrase a lot around here because it's very biblical and we should but it's easy to make that a slogan i'm i'm just here to love my neighbor i want to love my neighbor love my neighbor but never ask the question in your season of life where you are who's your neighbor I recently read a book uh, on this point in prep for this series, really for this sermon, called Loving My Actual Neighbor. Great title. And it's by a woman named Alexandria uh, Kuykendall. I don't know if I got that right. But she says this, and the quote will be on the screen. Tell me if you can resonate with this. Even if you're a different season of life, tell me how relatable this is. It was for me. The honest truth is I go about my days with my agenda, maintaining my priorities and my comfort. My default is to protect what feels good, safe. Unconsciously, I avoid discomfort. A mother of 4, I live in an overscheduled, distracted life. When I think about loving my neighbors, I wonder what it will cost me as far as time and energy, both of which feel maxed. Not to mention my worries about if we'll relate, what we'll talk about, what they'll think of me, if it will be awkward, even contentious. And whether it will feel more like work than friendship. In a contextual mission field like the suburbs, where so many of us are just that maxed out, feeling like I'm barely keeping my own head above water, to think about loving your neighbor in the way God calls us to feels more like work than friendship. Even if your season of life is different than Alexandra's here, I think, again, many of us can resonate. It turns out that loving your neighbor as yourself is easy to say and affirm, but can be uncomfortable and difficult to live out. And so there is a daily choice to say, "I'm going to enter in. I'm going to try and understand what does entering in look like for me now? Because Christ's love for me, which was abundant and free, now frees me to enter in, even when it's uncomfortable. That's number one. Number two, let's go quickly here, engage. What's it look like to engage in the suburbs? I think the best kind of engagement in our context is in the um, realm of long-term relationships that are cultivated over a period of time, where, as Paul engaged, we can reason with and discuss with our neighbor, and even in our relationships in the church with fellow Christians who need to be built up and encouraged. Uh, one issue that I have with a lot of evangelism studies is that you, again, you get to the point where you're supposed to memorize talking points, right? Not to say that there isn't some value in a lot of those evangelism teachings, but it tends to breed a one-size-fits-all conversation, no matter where you are or who you are, for everyone, and and then and you, and you just get really nervous because you've got to memorize them. It can be really nerve-wracking, and it leads to fear, where oftentimes we get in situations where we just say nothing because it's awkward and we're always kind of, we're like like looking for that quick segue of like the weather to the four-point gospel presentation. You've been there? But once you decide to enter in, I think the key, and this is where we can learn from Paul and from Jesus, two good guys to learn from, is to think about what are good questions to ask of other people that will allow us to know them. Perhaps rather than memorize four points, we are to have an arsenal of questions that we know we can reach for in order to understand others. A very New Testament ethic we see in Scripture is showing interest in others, not being so self-absorbed in your schedule, your life, your routine, your activities, that we never actually get to know people and develop those relationships. And over time, if you have good questions, you, get, you start to get to know people. You start to um, understand what's most important to them in life. What do they value? Where are their affections set upon most? And most times, when you show genuine interest in others, they will then show genuine interest in you. And they want to get to know what's most important to you. What do you value most? Where are your affections set? And Paul shows us that this dialogue led to an invitation. In the same way, when we love people enough to get to know them without a cookie cutter approach or agenda, God, I think, will provide the opportunity at their invitation to bear witness to his name. And these opportunities may arise from long-term dialogue, but it also, and I think increasingly so, can arise from a commitment you have to honoring God and lives you lead in the routine aspects of life. There's another book I've referenced before. It's called Disruptive Witness by Alan Noble. One day we're going to do a study on this book as a church, but it talks about living a life committed to God that disrupts the cultural norms of the day and confronts the false gods of the culture, like praying before a meal wherever you are, even just silently to yourself, like taking the Sabbath seriously and resting from work in a society that never rests from work, like being known more for generosity and living simply rather than a commitment to consumption in a world that always wants more and more and more like committing to never give in to gossip or talking negatively about others when they're not around. The most powerful witness is often done in the daily routine activities of life and things you do or don't do. And then lastly, and we'll finish with this, we are to explain. Enter, engage, explain. We engage with those around us in the spaces that we choose to enter into And then when God supplies the opportunity for you to bear witness to your faith, we are to explain in a way that will be based upon where we are and who we're talking to, based upon what you learned about them in your relationship with them. It's why I think the most effective missional way is to live in relationship. Because the better you know others, the better you can explain the gospel and the hope of the resurrection to them. And it's those three C's. In your understanding, have the Spirit lead you to a place where you understand what's the point of contact to the person I'm trying to reach. Even in the idols of comfort and of success and freedom, even affirming that it's human nature's desire to like those things, like comfort. It's not a bad thing. Success, not a bad thing. Freedom, certainly not a bad thing. See that as a point of contact, but then understand the point of conflict. That there's ways of getting hold of those things, comfort, success, and freedom, like we talked about last week. That you cannot actually grasp them with the things of this world. That you'll always be striving, never arriving. That those things are good gifts, but terrible gods. And then lastly, point to Christ. How it's only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through which we are restored by repentance and faith, that we will experience something like true comfort. And I'll say this as we close that in a post Christian culture, one major obstacle we face that Paul never faced in Athens is that when he began to talk about Jesus and the resurrection and what we now know as Christianity doctrine, no one in Athens knew about it. It was interesting because it was new. But the context that we're in today, everyone has an opinion of how they see Christians, everyone has an opinion. Of regardless of kind of what you believe, they will have an opinion about you. And generally, it's not great. That they're bigoted, closed-minded, just a political voting base base for the right. That these are the obstacles we face that Paul didn't face. And so our context is very different. And the way we need to think through these things are very different, relying upon the Holy Spirit to reveal them to us. But the message will never change. The message is about a person. Church, when you explain and God gives you the opportunities to explain, don't explain about a way of life people should live. Don't explain about a way that somebody can improve their life. Don't explain a moral code of behavior we're to follow. Don't explain about a candidate we should vote for. We proclaim a person, and his name is Jesus. And we proclaim the hope of the resurrection. We're not talking about an approved life. We're talking about a new life in Christ. And this fuels our love for him and for neighbor. This we can say along with Amy Carmichael, who said it 100 years ago, ask not how little, but how much can love give? Carmichael had her own fears before she chose to enter in. So as you think about your life, where God's calling you to enter in, whether that's vocational missions and it might be, or to enter into your office or your virtual office or your school or your neighborhood with your hope only in Jesus let these words that Amy's mother wrote to her when she was a young woman and made the decision to go overseas and she was dealing with the fears with that let these words from her mother minister to you and we will close with this it will be on the screen he he who hath led will lead all through the wilderness. He who hath fed will surely feed. He who hath heard thy cry will never close his ear. He who hath marked thy faintest sigh will never forget thy tear. He loveth always, faileth never. So rest on him today, forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the riches of both your word and for church history and for the stories of faithful men and women like Amy and her mother who can testify to us today. Encourage us in where you've called us, Lord. Give us the faith to embrace where we are. Lord, give us the courage to enter into the spaces you have us. Give us the courage to engage, to love our neighbor enough to understand them. And Father, give us the courage to explain and bear witness to your name when you give us an opportunity. Keep us from fear. Keep us from pride. And allow us to understand how much love can give. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.